Hey guys, it's Liz Kelly. Here's what's going on at The Ringer for the rest of the week. We're covering award season nominations, TV superlatives for the year, and the best memes of 2018. You can check those out on theringer.com. And check out The Ringer's Instagram, where every Friday, the staff provides their weekend recommendations. And every Saturday, our very own Kate Hallowell takes over with her new show, Tea Time, where she offers up her thoughts on the latest celebrity gossip. Make sure to follow us on Instagram, at Ringer. In your universe, there's only one Spider-Man. But there is another universe. It looks and sounds like yours, but it's not. My name's Miles Morales. I'm Sean Fennessy, Editor-in-Chief of The Ringer, and this is The Big Picture, a conversation show about the multiverse. And I am joined by Ringer staff writer Micah Peters. Micah, what's up? What's going down? Micah, we're here to talk about Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, which is a movie. And it's a movie that, I will say, when I was first made aware of it, I was like, well, this is a bad idea. This doesn't make any sense at all. (laughs) Oh, another Spider-Man movie? Another Spider-Man movie. I think this is the seventh Spider-Man movie. I think that that might actually be on the low side of the estimate. I was thinking it was more like 100. It's 100. Okay, so this is the 101st Spider-Man movie. And it's delightful that you and I can both report that this movie is great. It's Absolutely fantastic. It's so I, it's shocking. I, I it, it really improved. I was floating afterward. It we were great. both floating. Yeah. We were very we were emotional. We laughed. The music is banging. The vocal performances are incredible. The animation, this we should say, is an animated movie, is I think sort of extraordinary. It's unlike any other animated movie I've ever seen. Well, yeah, I mean, like we were talking about how it's very it's as close to being a Pixar movie as you can get without being a Pixar movie, but it also has like the very hard lines of like a comic book and the way that the the colors are saturated are just so and it looks amazing. Yeah, I think that's one of the I think that's one of the things that the critics early on have been saying about it, which is this more than any comic book movie that we've had and of course comic book movies are the lingua franca of modern popular culture these days, <laughs> this really approximates that feeling of having the pages between your fingers. And that's not easy to do because you think of reading a comic and it's a static experience. It's emotional, but you're flipping and you're holding and it's it's physical. Sitting in a movie theater is different. It, it, the, you need, your senses need to overwhelm you. And this movie does an amazing job of that. We're going to talk a little bit about what we liked about the movie, the choices that the filmmakers made to mm-hmm. make this such an effective construction. Going into the Spider-Verse is a confusing concept, and I'll be very curious to see how nine-year-olds handle some of the depth of this movie. I mean, like, as a person who once explained uh, basically time zones to my nephew by being like, you know, when we go to Atlanta, we're going to lose an hour, and he was just like, is it going to hurt? And I was like... (laughs) Uh, well, yeah. <laughs> and then when we come back, you're going to have to defeat your, your, your former self in single combat, and then only one of you gets to live. <laughs> so that my is... sister hit me over the head with a purse, so. Was... I mean, you more or less described what happens in this movie, which is that we live in a universe in which there is a Peter Parker, mm-hmm. and there is a young man named Miles Morales, and Miles Morales is bitten by some sort of radioactive spider, though not unlike the not like the one we've seen in the past, right? Right. So Miles Morales, like in canon or whatever, has like the ability to turn invisible and you know like shoot out electric currents at you know like emit electric currents from his body or whatever. Like, stuff that Peter Parker doesn't have. In the comic books, when uh, the character was created by Brian Michael Bendis and um, Sarah Pacelli uh, in the Ultimate Spider-Man, basically, he 
steps onto the steps into the Spider-Man mantle after Peter Parker dies with a fight with the Green Goblin in the comic books. And that's sort of kind of what happens here in this movie. There's a setup where there's the Peter Parker in this universe and Miles in this universe. There's a super hadron collider of some kind that opens yeah. portals to other universes. It's kind of like a none of none of it doesn't make strict scientific sense, but it doesn't have to. You get the gist. Yes, and in the movie, um, Kingpin is one of is the biggest heavy in the movie, and Kingpin is, I guess, the proprietor of this hadron collider. Yes. Yeah, so, uh, well, well, actually, it's it's uh, like Doc Ock is is actually. Olivia Octavius or whatever and she it's her Hadron she built it he funded it and he's just like it's mine and you, there's the tension amongst the ranks and the e- the evil ranks that is how it kind of crops up so anyway they use this Hadron Collider and then they open up a, a, a wormhole into multiple universes and from those universes emerges several spider creatures um, <laughs> and you know the movie is largely oriented around Miles' journey to becoming a Spider-Man and what he needs to do and his relationship to his father his relationship to his uncle Aaron his relationship to his, this new girl who he has met in school named we first learn Gwanda, but ultimately learn is an alternate universe, Gwen Stacy. Uh, this is, it's so funny because trying to talk about it, I feel like this is really confusing, but somehow in the movie, I was just kind of rolling with it. I kind of got it. It, yeah. it wasn't, I, and I think that there's like an extraordinary accomplishment in that. Well, yeah, I mean, like it's kind of, say for instance, uh, Lily Tomlin's character where she voices Aunt May. And Aunt May is, you know, just kind of, you think that she's just, oh, you know, like, I'm so, so like, you like you need to give Aunt May a hug. You need to figure out whether or not she needs, has, has she eaten yet or whatever. Yeah, she's an elderly then, old, old woman. Yeah, yeah, but it turns out that, you know, like, she's the Madam Web character, yeah, which yes. is just like, well, in the in the comics, the Madam Web character is kind of like at the center of the, the Spider-Verse or whatever. And she's like a precognitive mutant and, you know, like knows everything, kind of weighs whether or not. She just kind of exists outside of time. Okay. Like kind so, of a Professor X esque yeah. figure. And the way that they explained that in like the cartoons when I was coming up, I was just kind of like, okay, well, eventually, you know, Peter's going to have some sort of crisis of character. And then like he's going to end up outside of the continuum of space time talking to this old lady. And then after that, she's going to be like, well, you'll do it when it's worth it to you or something like that. And it's, it's kind of like the same deal. You just kind of roll with it. Yeah, and I think that that's one of the interesting things about this movie. It is both allegiant to the Spider-Man that we came to know as comic book readers, but also as watchers of the Tobey Maguire movies, maybe even the Andrew Garfield movies, certainly the Spider-Man Homecoming. This movie has nothing to do really with any of those movies, and that's by design. Mm -hmm. And what it also does is it shows us some of the hallmarks of the story, which is that it flashes on Spider-Man's origin. It flashes on with great power comes great responsibility with Uncle Ben's death. It shows us these things. And then as it starts to introduce these new spider characters, it uses that trope really effectively to kind of subvert it. And it's funny, you know, you said to me right before we sat down to watch the movie, God, I really hope they don't like belabor the freaking origin story. I feel like every superhero movie I walk into, they're like, oh, 40 minutes of the origin story. And of course they do this right at the top of this movie, but in a way that is new like and inventive. Campy. Yeah. yeah. Like, and it's, they kind of turn it inside out and then use it, like you said, ex- extremely effectively throughout the entire movie. It's, and another thing that you said as we were leaving was just like, you know, we're over two decades or like into this. And, you know, 
it's worth it to step back and examine the process. And this is a movie that does that. And on top of that, it's extremely funny the way that they do it. It's very, the script is really, really well written. I mean, we should say that this movie comes from the production team of Lord and Miller, who, you know, most recently came under some fire for being fired off of the solo film Mm -hmm. uh, in the Star Wars universe. But, you know, these are the guys who made uh, 21 and 22 Jump Street. They made the Lego movie. Like, they're really at home in a world like this, which is kind of rife with meta commentary, but also incredibly sweet and sincere and empathic towards his characters. It's a really hard thing to pull off. They've done such an amazing job of this. You know, I did also mention to you that the movie that I saw the night before this movie was Aquaman, which I'll talk more about on this podcast next week when Aquaman gets closer to release. (laughs) Aquaman is a complicated movie. I wouldn't say a bad movie, but it doesn't have any of the self-awareness or the you know, it's not, it's self-awareness, but not self-consciousness of Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse. There's something very knowing about the humor and about the character design of the, of these, of this world that makes it wholly unique to me. So I, it's, I don't want to overpraise this movie because it's, we're sort of it, yeah, coming off I mean, of Aquaman. Like it, it I'm kind of like, whoa, yeah. you know, the bar's lowering, but but it is, I, I mean, like like you said, the, the great power comes great responsibility line. Like, the way that that comes up in the movie is that, you know, like, one of the characters is saying it to the other. He's just like, don't you dare finish that <laughs> sentence. <laughs> like, it's, it's so many of the things are, like, there's callbacks to everything that you've seen on screen or, you know, like, everything is kind of, you know, in the spirit of what you read on the page. But... Okay, so think about, like, the way that the Spider-Man character was created. I mean, like, it was Steve uh, Ditko and Stan Lee basically making a character that appealed to younger readers. This is a guy that is not established as a superhero yet, isn't accepted by the Avengers or, you know, like, any of the older superheroes like the Fantastic Four. He's figuring it out on his own and also going through puberty. So it's, you know, like, he could be you, he could be anyone, but... He was white. (laughs) He was white. And like, so that kind of puts a cap on the like, it could be anyone underneath the mask. Um, And then that's like a cool thing that happens during the movie is that Miles is just like, you know, like it could be anyone. Like that's one of the the voiceover, uh, you know, like as the movie's ending, it's just like, it could be anybody. And then it's like actually true because uh, Miles is biracial. He's Afro-Puerto Rican from Brooklyn. And like, there's a really cool scene in the first part like the the opening of the movie where he's walking down the street like in Brooklyn dapping up people dapping up people and then speaking to people in Spanish and then you know like putting on his you know phone interview voice and then there's a like codes it's like it's great I loved every second of it yeah and that stuff doesn't feel overworked and it doesn't feel messagey it's just sort of like there are also people like this you know and that's one of the genius aspects of the movie that the meta aspects of it show us all of these different people wearing the Spider-Man costume and it reveals that but also just by spending a lot of time with Miles in Miles' head you know the movie opens I think in this really kind of charming moment where he's in his room, he's got his headphones on. <laughs> and he's, he's awkwardly singing he's, <laughs> that Swaley and Post Malone song, yes. Sunflower from the soundtrack, yeah. Which, I, you know, I will say when I heard Sunflower on Spotify a couple weeks ago, I was like, this is trash. And then I saw it in this movie, in this scene, and him kind of miming the the syllables I of mean, the song without knowing the words, which is something we've all done a million times. Yeah. And 
you immediately recognize Miles as a real person, even though he's an animated kid in a comic book movie. Yeah, it's 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 fantastic. Like, and also, I mean, like, it's as soon as that scene came in, and like that, it opens up, and then you hear the entire song as he's doing this this walkthrough. Um, I mean, like, you just heard me say, I was just like, damn it, this song is good. <laughs> <laughs> well, Sway Lee is good and Post Malone is less good, but it's mostly a Sway Lee song in my mind. The music in this movie in general is pretty great. This is certainly the first superhero movie to feature Biggie's Hypnotize, so I was delighted oh, to hear yeah. that yeah. Uh, as an aging man. Um, I also like that they didn't, they didn't, you know, kind of fudge around or do the, like, you know, do the thing where let's skirt around the more you know, edgier lyrics in the song and let's use this one clip instead of whatever. And he's just like, nah, the head right, Vicky the air night. And it's on, it's in there. That's in the movie. <laughs> it's in yeah. The movie. <laughs> yeah. It's an, it's an amazing thing. I mean, I, so let's talk a little bit more about the actual characters in the movie. We've obviously talked about miles. We've talked about one Peter Parker. Sure. You know, this is a spoiler podcast. It's an exit survey. So we're just going to be spoiling throughout the, this first Peter Parker that we meet is not really the Peter Parker that we know. The one that we meet, is blonde-haired, blue-eyed. Blue-eyed. He's voiced by Chris Pine and he is unfailingly kind and unflappable and like <laughs> Yeah, he sort of defies that Ditko Lee version of Spider-Man that you're talking about, who was kind of a confused and complicated teenager trying to figure out the world. And this Peter Parker that we meet is kind of perfect. And the ironic aspect of him being perfect is of course he dies fairly yeah. early on in the movie at yeah. the hands of Kingpin. Then all of a sudden, these new Spider-Men and Spider-People and Spider-Creatures start cropping up. The first of which is Peter Parker. He's just a different Peter. Peter, Peter B. Parker. Peter B. Parker. <laughs> yeah. uh, and Peter B. Parker is voiced, I think, incredibly well by Jake Johnson, who it's people know from New Girl. He, so good. It's an awesome performance <laughs> from Jake Johnson, who is sort of born to do something like this. And his Peter Parker is... I'm going to be a little self-referential here. I saw a lot of myself in this Peter Parker. Um, not just in the fact that he's like a sort of tall, but with a little bit of a paunch and in this graying at the temples and he's uh, unshaven. And there, there were some physical aspects of his presentation that I identified with. I just want everybody to know that Sean's shirt is tucked in right now. My shirt is tucked in. I'm just... I'm an adult man of 36. Um, <laughs> and so I, I related to this Peter Parker. You know, and this character at this time has has been divorced from, from Mary Jane. He is... Feels like he has failed Aunt May. He is an imperfect Spider-Man in a lot of ways. All of the ways that the blonde, blue-eyed, Chris Pine, Peter Parker is perfect. Jake Johnson's Peter Parker, Peter B. Parker, is lacking. And so he's an unlikely mentor to Miles. Nevertheless, they're brought together. He has to mentor him. What did you think about the way that they kind of fuse these two characters? I mean, like, I love the the fact that he's just... It, like, it's something you've seen, the, the story you've seen a lot, which is like the... The, the the very grizzled and over it in the in the midst of a 20 year existential crisis person you know befriending the young guy or whatever hard to believe i relate to this guy <laughs> <laughs> um but I, I mean like i loved everything about their interactions just because basically as it goes on you notice things and because all right so functionally the Peter Parker that you meet first, the the blonde hair, blue eyed one, has been Spider Man for t for ten years, and uh, Peter B. Parker, Jake Johnson's Peter Parker, has been Spider Man for twenty years, and it's just kind of like, all right, a, a, a lot can happen in those in those ten years afterwards. You know, like after you've 
you know, become an action figure and you've been on talk shows and you have a Christmas album and people <laughs> love you. And it's just kind of like, all right, well, maybe I save the world too much. Maybe I work too much. And, you know, that's why everything imploded or whatever, whatever, whatever. And these are like real questions that you can pos- that you can have. You and I have literally had the conversation about yes. everything that happens between <laughs> 27 and 37 and how it radically changes your life. And, and that, is, that is the theme of this movie. Yeah, it's very much about being out in the world and being able to be an adult without really knowing how to do it. It's just kind of like, how can you possibly know if you're doing something right, if you're doing it for the first time? I mean, like, that's what the entire movie turns on. I mean, it's... But anyway, yeah, Jake Johnson's uh, Peter Parker wears sweatpants and shoes. (laughs) It's great. (laughs) There are a few other um, spider characters that we should talk through. You know, I, I have not really been a reader of the comics in the last I don't know, probably 10 plus years. And so I'm not as familiar with some of these iterations. Um, the idea of an alternate universe Peter Parker makes sense to me. You know, the idea of Spider-Gwen, Gwen Stacy being the person who takes up the mantle of Spider-Man was surprising and cool. Haley Steinfeld voices that character. Miles and and Gwen have a kind of a meet-cute in their high school, in their private I don't know, is that like a charter school or something? I don't know what that school is that Miles attends. It's whatever that school is that Tom Holland attends in Spider-Man Homecoming. Is it the also, same school? I mean, like, it's it's not the same school, but it's like the same vibe. Got it. In addition to Spider-Gwen, who who else do we meet? Um, we meet Penny, mm-hmm. um, which is the anime Spider-Man that has a link with a telepathic spider that lives in a robot of her deceased father. Sure, that's normal. <laughs> sure. Um, there is... This movie's weird, I, we should say. It's super weird. It's really weird. It's super weird. Like, you you are just going to have to roll with it. Yes. Like, <laughs> but there's also Spider-Man Noir, voiced by Nicolas Cage. Incredible stuff. It's... Oh, man. He's... <laughs> He's literally a black and white Spider-Man character dressed like Humphrey Bogart, talking like Humphrey Bogart, voiced by Nicolas Cage, but also Spider-Man. Yeah, and like just constantly saying the most morbid stuff. And <laughs> like, there's a really good gag with the Rubik's Cube. You gotta, you, but anyway, you'll see that. Anyway, there's also Peter Porker, voiced by John Mulaney, uh, which is just... Spider-Man as a it's they basically are doing this bit that where they're where they're all going through their origin stories you know when they first all meet each other and it's great because at the end of because everything all the aspects of the story are the same and maybe a little different but the words that they're using are the same but at the end of it is you can always hear pig 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 <laughs> <laughs> it's funny casting Nicolas Cage and John Mulaney and designing an anime character. You know, these characters come in a little bit later in the film. They're obviously there for a kind of comic relief. They And they help tell the story a little bit. But they are like internet writ large. You know, they're like memes on screen. I don't know if I've ever seen a movie that got what's funny about something like that. That got... Because, you know, Spider-Pig... Is Spider-Pig the name of the character? Yeah. Okay, Spider-Pig is basically Porky Pig meets Bugs Bunny. Yeah, I mean, like, he he beats people with a mallet and, yeah, like, yeah. you know, produces anchors out of his pockets, yeah. you know? Like it's, yeah, he's a Looney Tunes character. Yeah. And the movie that I kept thinking of, especially as this movie went on and it gets sort of more kaleidoscopic and more strange and more fun and high energy is Who Framed Roger Rabbit? Have you seen Who Framed Roger yeah. Rabbit? Okay, <laughs> so Who Framed Roger Rabbit, of course, Robert Zemeckis' movie from the early 90s in which 
you know, cartoons, tunes live in the real world, the real sort of noir detective world of the 1930s and 40s in America. And what you have is this like fourth wall breaking thing where the idea of a character like Bugs Bunny actually exists in a world that you can interact with. Not a lot of movies have tried to do this. Um, And I think it's because it's really difficult to pull off. It's really difficult to convince people that they should buy in on this joke. Mm-hmm. How do you think that they, this movie that also has all of this sincere tension between father and son and identity and trying to figure out who you are as a young person in the world and who you are as an aging person in the world. And then ba- with balance, the pig. Yeah, yeah, balanced it with the pig. Well, no, I mean, like, it's 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 like you said. I mean, like, there has got to be a valve for, yeah, like, you know, some of this is just not that serious. I mean, there's a sequence at the end of the movie where like something really dramatic happens and then Peter Porker saves the day and it's funny. Like, and it's just kind of like having that balance, but also it works because the entire on screen enterprise of Spider-Man is like part of the joke. I mean, like it's because there have been so many there's, there's, this is a thing that is permissible. I mean, like you definitely can't put Peter Porker in this movie. If Andrew Garfield, Tobey Maguire and, you know, Tom Holland all play the character, if there haven't been as many reboots and changes to it as there have been. If the way that the way that Marvel kind of uses you know, like, oh, the Hulk is Korean-American, the Thor is a woman now, but eventually everything returns to the white male character that it was before. Mm-hmm. You don't get to have these sort of jokes and have them work without having that kind of ass-backwards way of doing things. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's an interesting year to examine the way that we kind of design our heroes, too, because I think, on the one hand, you've got this major success of Black Panther, which obviously gave us kind of a, not a new way to tell this story, but a a new face on the story, right? And that was obviously a massive, significant cultural event for a lot of African-Americans, but also just, I think, for the movie industry in general to show, like, movies like this, not only can they work, but they could be the biggest possible version of this kind of movie. Yeah. So that seemed important. On the other hand, if you look down the cast list on the Avengers, you know, it's a lot of Chris's. It's a Scarlet. Literally all the Chris's. It's a Jeremy. Yeah. You know, it's it's a lot of folks like that. And I don't think that readers or viewers necessarily want to be hit over the head with the idea that these this has to be this sort of multicultural, multilingual world of heroes. But on the other hand, as you say, in the comic books, just by the by dint of necessity to reinvent the characters, they've been redefining who they are and what they look like. And I'm wondering if you think a movie like this in some ways, I don't know if you need to necessarily measure it against Black Panther, but accomplishes just as much by showing a multiplicity of approaches. Yeah, I mean, like, it's definitely not, I mean, like, it's not the same cultural phenomenon that Black Panther was, I mean, obviously. But in terms of representation and not doing it in a way that feels, like, forced or preachy in any way, it's just kind of a thing that is, you know, like, just Spider-Man is Miles Morales. Miles Morales is Spider-Man. Yep. And it's a really cool thing to see. I mean, like the first, like when I open, when I unlock my phone immediately after the movie was over and I open Twitter, first thing I see is Saladin Ahmed who wrote the the most recent run of Black Bolt comics. He's also doing uh, the Miles Morales comic that I think is coming out later this month. I'm not entirely sure. But anyway, he was just like, I 
it's really cool that I got to go to McDonald's and get my kids toys that look like them and then also take them to a movie where the main character looks like them. And I wrote the comic for this character and it's coming out best year. But like, you know, it's, it's yeah. something like that. You know what I mean? Yeah. Being able to see yourself and not have to be like, not have to do that extra step of like imagining that this you get to be this person is a small thing, but a huge thing. Yeah. I think also a movie like this is different uh, than black Panther, which even if it's just around the marketing of the movie sort of necessarily had to be a cultural event. There had to be a story to tell because there'd never been a movie like that made by Marvel with a movie like this. It's as you say, it's just sort of accepted as fact. This is just what it is. It's it, it is, it makes it normalizes a thing that should probably should have been normalized a long time ago. But as we know, like these are the, really the coin of the realm in movies in the 21st century. And so the more movies we have like this, I feel like the better off they are. Um, I want to talk a little bit about just the art of vocal performance. Um, <laughs> we talked about Jake Johnson and just what a kind of a perfect bedraggled aging Spider-Man he is. Mm-hmm. Uh, we haven't mentioned Shamik Moore, who of course plays Miles Morales. Yeah. Um, people may know Shamik Moore from the get down. What else, what else was he in? Uh, he was also in dope and dope. That's right. Mm-hmm. Um, does he represent the voice that you heard in your head when you were reading the comic? Yeah, because it's it's kind of, he is, basically, he's a certain kind of confident. I mean, like, Peter Parker is a nerd, you know? <laughs> like, and it's, Miles Morales is just kind of, not exactly popular, not unpopular, just cool and able to navigate, you know, like, whatever. I yep. mean... He's good with everybody. He's good with everybody. Until he is then opened up into this this new kind of world that, you know, like he doesn't really know how to, he doesn't really know how to navigate, but he's going to try anyway because he has to. And that sort of uncertainty within certainty of yourself, the confidence of it. I like, I like, I love Shamik Moore's performance in this. Also, the way that I read Miles Morales' character more so than Peter Parker, and I guess in a way that I particularly understood is that he's just kind of, it's almost like he's a kid that was in the stands and snuck onto the field and managed to be able to play better than everybody else that was playing. Like, And the journey from the beginning of the movie to the end of the movie where he's able to do all those things is believable and natural. That is sort of the literal arc of his character too, so it fits in perfectly. This also is a movie that has a performance from Mahershala Ali, Oscar winner, Brian Tyree Henry, who... I think the ringer thinks it's probably the best working actor around right now. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned Lily Tomlin. You mentioned Oscar winner Nicolas Cage. We haven't mentioned Liev Schreiber, who is just the god of vocal work it's... from his times doing HBO sports documentaries to, of course, all of his performances as the actor Liev Schreiber to his work here as Wilson Fisk, a.k.a. Kingpin. Also, Kimiko Glenn, who is so-so in, in Orange is the New Black, voices Penny Parker. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mentioned Chris Pine, who's a huge movie star, who's doing like seven line readings in this movie. Um, <laughs> I mean, it's quite a lineup of, of, of vocal actors. Oh, shout out to Katherine Hahn, who plays uh, Olivia Octavius, a.k.a. Doc Ock, <laughs> and Zoe Kravitz, who's Mary Jane, and Lake Bell, who's Vanessa Fisk, and Yorma Tacone, who's Green Goblin. I mean, it's just a fun parlor game. Like, it, just just get your friend who can give you three hours to do vocal work to come in and do this thing, and it'll weirdly make your movie more entertaining if it's animated. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, like everybody should be tearing a page out of out of out of Phil Lord's playbook. Can I give you a a little rap fact as the host of the On Shuffle podcast? Yeah, go ahead. You're familiar with the character Tombstone, yes, who appears in this movie, one of uh, Kingpin's henchmen in this movie. He is voiced by Crondon. Wow, because Crondon was also like in he was. The villain in Luke Cage, too. Yes, he was. He was. So somehow Crondon has managed to worm his way into the Marvel expanded universe. Strong steady. Wow. So music is alive. Rap is alive (laughs) in this movie in more ways than one. What else should we talk about? I mean, I think that sort of unlike Aquaman, which as soon as the movie ended, I was like, I can't believe I have to go do this again two years from now and go see Aquaman 2 and like think about it and explain it. Mm -hmm. I found myself excited to see what they do with this story. Yeah, I mean, like, there's uh, already been rumblings about, like, you know, the, the the Gwen Stacy movie. There's the the inning sort of sets that up a little bit. But I, after the movie was over, was not thinking about the what the next thing might be. It was just kind of like, this was a great thing that happened, and I'd be fine if there were no more of these, because, you know, like, what if they ruin it? But <laughs> also... I mean, like, I guess it would be interesting to see where the story goes from here. Yeah. And, you know, my co-host on the Oscar show, Amanda Dobbins, doesn't watch animated movies. She calls them cartoons, um, nor does our our pal and colleague Chris Ryan. So I'll, I'll never get a chance to talk to them about this aspect of the movie. But this movie has won a lot of critics awards for best animated feature. Now, best animated feature over the years almost always goes to a Pixar movie. Mm-hmm. And this year, there's a great Pixar movie. And interestingly, that Pixar movie is about superheroes. It's called Incredibles 2. But Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse has now won, I believe, the LA Film Critics Circle and the New York Film Critics Circle, excuse me, LA Film Critics Association and the uh, New York Film Critics Circle Award for Best Animated Feature. I don't know that a Spider-Man animated movie necessarily winning a Best Animated Feature Oscar is like a totemic event, but I now find myself rooting for it for this strange, silly award, what would would it mean anything for Into the Spider-Verse to win Best Animated Feature? I mean, sure. I mean, like it would you would you would probably know better what the what the I guess industry ramifications of that would be. But I mean, I I guess I'm not exactly worried about whether or not it it beats Incredibles two for whatever. Just because, again, like I'm just so happy that the movie got made and it's as good as it is. Yeah, but. I do think that it would be just as important as if, you know, like it's just as important as movies like Black Panther invading the Oscars. Right. I mean, it's, yeah, I am rooting for it, but just because it's good and if it doesn't win, at least it happened. The one thing I was thinking about with this story, and it's related to what you've just mentioned, is there is the idea of a sideline animated version of a movie about a character that doesn't affect the long-term continuity of kind of the big cinematic universe Uh is not new. Mm Mm-hmm. If you go on iTunes right now and you type in Avengers, you'll find not just uh, the Avengers or the Avengers Age of Ultron or the Avengers Infinity War. You'll also find a bunch of other movies that are called the Avengers colon something that are animated that are not very good. But they're like sanctioned quasi kids movies that are loose adaptations of comic book storylines. DC's animated universe is better. Oh, interesting. Okay. So I don't watch these movies ever. It seems like you do. Yeah. The thing I kept thinking last night is really the only dissonance I have. And it doesn't make me like the movie any less, but the idea of not just one 
or even two, but maybe even three kind of ongoing Spider-Man universes Mm -hmm. to manage as a person covering movies on a week-to-week basis (laughs) is a lot. Um, If I were paying more close attention to those animated movies that kind of go straight to VOD, maybe I would already have some sensibility about this. Do you think ultimately there's a problem with not just six or seven spider people in a movie, but six or seven Spider-Men ongoing at the same time, or can movies exist essentially as comic books do, which is on different continuities and different timeframes? I think that movies can, ex- I mean, I whether or not they, I think they can or can't, they are going to, just because there's, Avengers Infinity War was a ridiculous enterprise. Like asking somebody to, have 19 films worth of knowledge in order to enjoy a three-hour movie, basically, is a ridiculous thing to ask. Agree. But at the same time, Infinity War was as good as it was because it recreates the feeling of reading like a massive crossover event in a comic book. Yeah, these people die, and yeah, they're still under contract. You know they're going to be back in the next issue. But you feel like what's happening on the page as it's happening, and that's fine, you know? And... Maybe you want to know more about this character, so you go find that title. Maybe you want to know more about this character, so you go find that title. And it's just, this is too lucrative for it not to be a thing where we're going to have all of these plates spinning at once. Who is, so let's say we get Spider-Gwen next. What's the third movie you want to see based on the characters we've seen? Or or, or is there a character that we haven't seen that you think deserves his own Spider franchise? I want to s- I, I kind of want to see a Spider-Man more short i don't want to see i don't want to see a whole movie with nicholas cage doing rorschach they should just do like they should just remake to have and have not or 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 (laughs) key largo or the big sleep just with spider-man noir just the same story (laughs) same characters but it's just spider-man do you think that would work yeah yeah i think it could work i mean i it's it's it wouldn't be anything it wouldn't be any less ridiculous than anything else i mean that's a great way to close this conversation i believe (laughs) micah you and i loved spider-man into the spider-verse thank you for doing this of course Thanks again for listening to this week's episode of The Big Picture. For more on Spider-Man colon Into the Spider-Verse, check out TheRinger.com where Micah Peters, our guest on today's episode, has written about the movie. And you know, if you haven't been checking out the podcast lately, please rate and review it. We'd love to hear what you think and what you want to hear more of. And if you didn't really check out any other episodes this week, we had a really great week. Earlier in the week, we had Wesley Morris on talking about the best performances of 2018. And then just yesterday, I had Barry Jenkins in the studio and we talked about his wonderful new film, If Beale Street Could Talk. And we'll be back next week with a brand new episode of the Oscar show with Amanda Dobbins. See you then.